Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. This is the word of the Lord. Oops, we have more verses. We have more verses. Please stay standing. There's an error. Verse 13. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as you may have heard from the uh, greeting and perhaps during the prayer for the offering, this is a wonderful, special, high holy day in the church calendar. This is a day that we have celebrated, I believe we're on our fifth Christ the King Sunday. And I wanted to take just a brief moment to describe the aspects of our worship this morning that relate to Christ's throne, his installation in power, and his current and active present reign. Uh, if you were here with us over the last few weeks, we were in 1 Thessalonians 5, and you may remember how we chose 1 Thessalonians 5 as it anticipated the celebration of Advent, that just as Israel had longed for and waited for the Messiah, we also are longing for and waiting for the return of that same Messiah. And so the season of Advent is a precursor to the, the return of Jesus Christ. So 1 Thessalonians 
uh, 1 through 5, each chapter, Paul is ending with a theme of anticipating the return of the Lord Jesus. On Christ the King Sunday, which is celebrated today, the Sunday before the beginning of Advent, we celebrate this as our last day in the church calendar in which we are remembering and praising God for what he has done through Christ in defeating the powers and being in, and installing his son on the throne of the universe, both over heaven and over the earth. And so as we look at this passage today in Psalm 132, it is enveloping in our celebration of Christ the King Sunday. You may have noticed if you were here last week, we have changed the color of the paramount. And the paramount is, uh, actually, we have two paramounts here, one on the table and one on the pulpit. The purpose of these things is to express something externally about an inward and and super real reality, which is Christ's regal nature, his, his throne and the purity of his reign. Not only was he pure in his offering, the white symbolizing purity, he is impeccable in his reign. He can never err in the excellency of his decisions. The final thing I'd like to call your attention to on the pyramids is this weird symbol. Uh, many of you may have never thought about this symbol. It, is, it looks like a P and an X. And actually, that would be reading it backwards. But this symbol comes from the Greek, and it's a tradition that has been handed down through the church from the earliest of, of years. We have manuscripts, copies of the scripture, which take the name of Jesus in the text and abbreviate it. It's kind of like if you were going to write out the president's name all the time. Instead of Donald J. Trump, you might just write DJT. If you were taking short notes or, or you know, every president... Uh, we always know their middle names so that we can abbreviate them. Well, the, the writers of the New Testament and the copiers of the manuscripts did the same thing. And they would take Jesus Christ's name, and instead of Yesu Christos or Yesu Christo, they would shorten it down to two letters, I-X, or in this case, Chi-Rho or Chi-Sigma. And uh, you don't have to know Greek to understand what that means, but the chi is where we get he or chris uh, from, that chris sound, and then the rho is simply a Greek r. It looks like a p, but it's actually an r. And so when you look at these pyramids, what we're saying through these pyramids, just to help us be mindful of our celebration, we're celebrating the purity of Christ, the reign of Christ, not some weird skull and crossbones kind of symbol or some P and X thing. No, it's, it's just the name of Jesus. We are, we are celebrating that it is Jesus Christ, the anointed king. That's what Christ means. And we are celebrating not only his reign now, but anticipating that one day he will come in great power and not only reign in heaven and in the earth, but he will reign over all those, that the rebellion against him will be completely stopped and eliminated. So Christ the King Sunday is a wonderful Sunday, and it is the end of our year. Just like you may anticipate December 31st as a time to start over and a time to celebrate all the good things that God has done in the prior year, so also Christ the King finishes our calendar year as a church. This is a great culmination in 
what is the point of the universe? The point of the universe is that the Son of God will reign forever in power and glory, with purity, with joy, and we, his people, will be given the chance, given the grace of sitting on his throne with him. That is the point of Christ the King Sunday. So to that end, I want to remind us of what this day is for, and then look at the passage. This psalm was a song of ascents. It's a song used to go up to the house of the Lord. And in this song, we hear a prayer petitioning God to remember the actions of David in righteousness as David wished to build a dwelling place for God. The temple is not just a a place where God is worshipped. No, the temple is God's abode. It's his house. And so David is being remembered in this psalm by these worshipers who are going up to the temple and they're asking Yahweh to remember David's righteousness and for Yahweh to come and be in the midst of his people. So as they As they return to God's abode, they call on God to come, and therefore they remember not only David's trials, but they themselves are entering into that perseverance and that faith. They sing a song, and they are also making a petition to God. Then they call to mind the Lord's promises that he gave to David, which we often will call the Davidic covenant. There's an aspect of the glory of Christ seen in this promise given to David. And that promise given to David is not just given to David alone, but as a king, that promise which is placed upon him boils or falls down to or rolls over to all of his people. The king is blessed for the sake of his people. Finally, we're going to look at God's choice of Zion and how this is not just an earthly city, but rather it was God's choice, his selection of the heavenly Jerusalem. And finally, we're going to look at the ways in which Christ has fulfilled everything that is pointed to in this psalm. This is the point of Christ the King Sunday. What they anticipated, today now we celebrate, finding all of these passages' fulfillments in the Lord Jesus. The psalmist in this psalm opens his petition calling upon God to remember the hardship that David experienced as he lived out a life of righteousness. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, period. And that includes the saints of old before the Lord's appearing. It's important when we think about David's calling to remember that before David was called, King Saul was rejected for one reason. King Saul failed to listen to the word of the Lord through the prophet of the Lord. The king which was chosen by the people to be a king like the kings of the other nations, that king was rejected because he disobeyed God. Therefore, in the context of choosing another king, we recognize in the light of what happened with Saul, if there's going to be a king over Israel who remains, he must hear and obey the word of the Lord. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul fails to slay King Agag and the rest of the Amorites, uh, Amalekites, excuse me, and and permits the, f- the flock to live, the sheep which were to be offered up in 
the ban. Now, it's important to understand the nature of Saul's disobedience. He took something that was detestable to God and brought it in and tried to offer it up as pure worship. These livestock were not to be given in adoration. They were to be destroyed in an act of judgment. It's kind of like the opposite of, it's like taking a bouquet of flowers and throwing it into a fireplace. It's just not the point of the the thing. So, So Saul takes this false worship and presents it before God and says, accept it. And Samuel then judges Saul and he says, you should have obeyed rather than offer a sacrifice because God does not desire sacrifice, he desires obedience. David was a person that in the eyes of man was the least among his brothers. And it's important to recognize that he was anointed even before his defeat of Goliath. He was anointed to be king while Saul still reigned. So Saul was the king. He was rejected by Yahweh, but he had not been deposed. He had not died. He was still king over Israel. David is being risen up by God, anointed king before having victory, and then is persecuted. Though triumphing over Goliath, though bringing salvation to Israel, David is forced to flee from Saul as Saul begins to hunt him down. In verse 1, the psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Only after being installed king, after Saul's tribe falls away, and after David is crowned both king over Israel and Judah, only after David finds extreme rest from his enemies, did he then vow to make a habitation for God's uh, temple or for God. While God's people were wandering through the wilderness, God went with them in a tabernacle. You may have heard in the Sunday school hour this idea in in the time of Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees a movable heavenly tabernacle or movable heavenly temple. This idea is that God is going with his people through the trials of the wilderness. That house, God's house, was movable at that time, and it was right for it to be movable. But now that peace has been granted by God to the king of Israel and the people of Israel, it's right that God himself settles in the land. As God said when giving the laws for the consecrations of the priest in Exodus 29, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And what's the purpose for his dwelling? They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The heart of God in delivering his people out of Egypt wasn't to stop their persecution alone. It was so that he could come and dwell in their midst. Yes, God delivers us out of sin, but he wants to reside among us. And this is exactly what took place in the day of David. David, therefore, set his heart at this time to build God's house that God would dwell in their midst. Verse 3, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyelids to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. David's desire for the personal presence of God was so strong that he made it his chief aim. 
He afflicted his life until God's house would be established. So as these worshipers are going up in this psalm, they're remembering God's promises given to David, these gracious covenants, which were the reason that David was able to trust in God. It says, behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Another translation says, we found it among the trees. It's important to remember the trees were used to build God's house. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Even as these, psalm, uh, these worshipers are going up, remember this is a song of ascents, even as they're going up to God's house, they are arising to God's house, but as soon as they begin to go up, they call on God to go as well. Do you see this theme? God wants to dwell with his people, and his people, both David and these worshipers, know that they need God's active blessing presence in their midst. They say, arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. These worshipers here are remembering the words that Moses used as they anticipate God's victory. The point is this, that as God's presence left Egypt and wandered with them in the desert, they saw the Ark of the Covenant, which was the focus of worship in the tabernacle, as being a token of or a symbol of the very presence and power of God in their midst. God gave Moses a command in Numbers 10, 35. It says, whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee from you. All the armies of the nations, indeed all the armies even till modern times, sent out their best warriors at the front lines. And in the way that Israel went out and camped, the ark was the center of their, uh, their campaign. The ark was the most important thing, that if God's presence did not go up with them, then they also would not go up. These worshipers, these psalmists, know that exact same idea. Unless God goes up, we cannot have victory. Unless God goes before us, we're going to be routed, we're going to be surrounded, and we're going to be ruined. But... If he does go up with us, that will be for us victory, righteousness, and joy. Therefore, they pray, verse 10, for the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. This anointed one that they're talking about is one of David's descendants. It's one of his sons. These worshipers pray that God would sustain David's son because they remember the promises given to David. After their prayer, they then recall God's covenant promise in response to David's vow. If you're familiar with the passage in 2 Samuel 7, it says that when David found rest in his house, then he purposed to build a house for the Lord. David then tells Nathan his desire. Nathan, the prophet, then says, go, it's right. It's a good thing for you to do. And by this, we understand that David was operating by the Holy Spirit. He knew he had a sense of what God desired to do based on his reading of the law. After David told Nathan his desire, and after Nathan acquiesced to that desire, 
a word of the Lord then immediately comes to Nathan, giving a little bit of a focus and a correction. Nathan comes and he doesn't deliver a rebuke, but he does deliver a response. Something in the heart of David accomplished a response in the heart of God. Instead of David building a house for the Lord, Nathan hears a word from the Lord and is told by God to tell David, the Lord will make you a house. Though David wanted to build the Lord a physical temple, the Lord will build a spiritual house of David's offspring. And David goes on to say that this is an instruction for all mankind. One of the most obscure details in that entire account, it almost looks like it's not part of the story, but as David is reflecting upon this gracious promise that God would give him a house, he then goes on to say, Lord, this was a great thing that you did. It was, it was no small thing that you've done for me, and yet it is small in your eyes. It's not too difficult for you. And then he goes on to describe that this promise word is instruction for all mankind. The idea that David has is this, what you've just promised me, isn't about the kingdom of Israel. It's about a king who's coming to reign over all men. That the, the reign of this anointed one, one of my sons, is going to expand over the entire earth. Verse 11, the psalmists remember, they say, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. What an interesting promise. You're, you're speaking to a king who wasn't allowed to reign until the king who preceded him was no longer reigning. It's an important detail that we just cannot miss. Regarding the first part of this covenant, it is absolute. He is sworn and he will not change his mind. God will set one of David's sons on the throne. But the second aspect of this covenant is conditional. If your sons keep my commandments, then they will sit. David's sons, as we know from the rest of the scripture, after these psalms have been written, David's sons indeed did not remain in God's ways. They sinned grievously. After just a short time, Solomon, the king after David, one of David's sons, turned away after other gods. He multiplied a harem of, of concubines and wives, and they drew his heart away from the worship of Yahweh. He established idolatry in the land. And immediately after Solomon's, Solomon's days were ended, the kingdom was split in two. His son, Rehoboam, began to act like Pharaoh. If you remember what Pharaoh did, he made the Israelites make bricks without straw. And as Rehoboam is taking the throne, the people of Israel come and say, will you be harsh with us like Solomon, demanding a lot of tribute, or will you be gracious? And Rehoboam rejects the counsel of the elders of Israel who said, be gracious and speak kindly to them and they will be your people forever. And he says, no, rather, I'm going to put a harsh burden. My pinky is thicker than my father's thigh. That's what he, that's what he said. And he's saying, I'm going to impose, you thought you've seen taxes, you haven't seen taxes. 
That's what Rehoboam is going to, that's what Rehoboam did. And at that news, all of Israel flees away. They say, we have no part in David, the son of Jesse. The point is, the kings that come after David, the kings of the flesh, the sons of the flesh, do not continue in God's ways. At this very moment in the life of Israel, Israel and Judah are split apart and both slide into apostasy and exile. Nevertheless, as we know, God's promise remains. Even though the kings after David immediately fall into sin with only a few short revivals and seasons of repentance, the kingdoms are rent asunder. They are, they are like a corpse, dead, broken, dismembered. This is what happens to the tribes of Israel. They're ripped apart from each other. They slide off into sin. And there is not only no king on the throne, there's no king there's no people to be king over. That's how broken the promise of God seemed to be, and yet God's promise remains forever. These worshipers who are going up to God's house remember God's covenant promises and graces culminating in the great promise of the Messiah. I will abundantly bless, excuse me, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. The point is this that God, with full knowledge of the future waywardness of Israel and Zion, chooses Israel and Zion despite her waywardness to bless her and to restore her. This is a wonderful teaching from covenant history that God who knows all sees the sins of Israel before they are committed and nevertheless he sets his love upon her. In the place of her garments of ashes, her her exile, her, her deadness, her idolatry, God is going to give Zion's priests garments of salvation and righteousness and the people who weep in tears out into exile will return with shouts and songs of joy. And all of this will be the Lord's doing because although all the kings after David fell away, God is going to raise up a shoot out of David. Verse 17, there I will make in Zion a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. If you're an Israelite who has experienced the waywardness of these wicked kings, the promise that a crown would shine upon one of David's sons is a seemingly impossible promise to fulfill. Nevertheless, these are the words that God gives his people. Whoever this horn is for David, he will be like a light shining in a dark place. He will be a, a bright shining lamp in a land filled with darkness. It's appropriate that the church uses the season of winter to celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus because it's a time, especially in the northern hemisphere, where we have a wonderful aspect, a wonderful season in which everything outside is turning to pictures of death. All the leaves fall off of the tree, they begin to decay and die. They go from green to yellow to red to brown and eventually they break apart. Every plant, every flower loses its, its leaves and its flowers, its petals, and they go away. 
and nothing remains. Now, to be fair, there are evergreen trees, and that's why we actually use them for that reason. The point is this, that God is doing something with his people. He has taken the stump down to the root. I have a tree at my house, which I hate. It is a Bradford pear. It is known for falling apart. In fact, when we had that great ice storm, somebody, to, uh, it, it, it partially fell over. Thankfully, it didn't fall on my car. I asked someone on the internet years ago what to do about a Bradford pear, and they said to prune it at the ground. If you don't know, pruning something at the ground is a joke. Be- because you do, not, you do not prune things at the ground that you want to grow again. The point is, the sons of David were pruned at the ground. There was nothing left to come forth. There was no sign of hope. It is like a gray ash stump that has been burnt out. It is completely hopeless. There is no sign of life out of this stump. Not only was it cut down, it's been dead for hundreds of years. And God says concerning the root of David, I'm going to cause a sprout to come up. This is like a shoot of green coming out of a gray stump after a cold winter. This anointed one who comes is going to bring hope to an otherwise hopeless people. As we know what this psalm anticipates in promise to David, today we know and celebrate in completion in the entire life of Jesus Christ. And I want to take just a few minutes to go through this psalm and show how it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. By his birth, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification and reign, Christ has completely fulfilled not just the promises given to David in this psalm, but all of God's promises. As Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians in the opening of the letter, all of God's promises find their completion in Jesus Christ, their yes and their amen. In the birth of Christ, we see dozens of specific fulfillments That is, God's signs for those who are looking for his salvation. What I love about this is what it teaches of the divine fulfillment of these promises. One could argue that Jesus instructed his apostles to do certain things to fulfill the law. But no one could argue that the Christ child was working his will through the actions of his parents and the prophets who came before him before his birth. As the worshipers heard of God's promise in Benjamin Ephrathah, they, the shepherds uh, in Bethlehem hear the angel's song and stream to worship the Lord at his birth. In Luke 2.15, they hear a song which is like a psalm of ascents, glory to God in the highest. And at the hearing of this song, they then say, like this psalm, we heard of it in Ephrathah, let us go and worship him. This was just as Micah promised in Micah 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me a ruler, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. As soon as this takes place, uh, they go and worship the Lord and find him and bring him tribute for a king. 
After the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah spoke of Jesus Christ, directly referencing this psalm. In Luke 1.69, we hear that Yahweh has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The house of David was ended, and yet Zechariah, speaking by the Holy Spirit, hears the words of Mary that she is with child, and at the birth of John the Baptist, prophesies concerning the Lord Jesus. As Jesus' parents brought him into the temple, Simeon recognized the Christ child as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Throughout Christ's life and ministry, not only birth, we see him as the true son of David, building up and restoring God's house, his people. Just like David suffered hardship as he sought to build God's house, so also Christ was opposed at every step of his life and ministry. When David was born, he was born in a small town, called Bethlehem, to a small family, Jesse, as the least of the sons, shortest and least attractive, according to Samuel's account. He was, like David, Christ was born in seemingly questionable circumstances, in a town that was derided and of no repute. They said, what comes out of Nazareth, or what good can come out of Nazareth? This was the claim about that city. Though David had a house, in Jesus' ministry, he said to his apostles, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Though Though David suffered great hardship being hunted by Saul, Jesus was pursued even from the time of his birth. As we'll celebrate in a few weeks, the slaughter of the innocents, that at his very coming, Jesus was hunted by the false king, the rejected king of Israel. Throughout his entire ministry, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, the Romans, the centurions, the temple guard, they all sought to persecute and plot to kill him. At at some times, it was a nation of people or a group of people. At other times, it was the people in the temple. At one point, they tried to take him by force and install him as king, yet he would have none of it. Not only in his birth and his life and his ministry, but also in his death and resurrection, Jesus was shown to be the Messiah to sit upon the throne of his father, David. Though David was crowned king and then years later died in peace, Israel rejected Jesus Christ at his crucifixion. In fact, it is only at his crucifixion where Jesus allowed himself to be called king. There's an interesting fact that when they wanted to come and make him king by force, he refused to go along with their plan because he would not reign in anything other than obedience. He was not going to be Saul reigning because the people wanted him to reign. No, he was going to reign in obedience to his father as the true king. When Christ was raised up upon the cross, there was an inscription affixed to the top of that cross. It said, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And they wrote it in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. You might be able to call this the Proto-New Testament. It was even translated for all the world to read, for everyone to see. Jesus Christ was crowned in his crucifixion. Triumphing up out of the grave, Jesus was shown, as Peter says, in the resurrection to be both Lord God with us and Christ, 
the anointed one to sit on the throne of his father, David. It's important for us, it's so difficult actually for us to remember that every time we say Christ, we are saying the Messiah. We are saying the anointed one to take the throne of his father, David. We are identifying Jesus with the perfect fulfillment of all of these promises. Finally, in Christ's ascension and glorification, Jesus Christ has taken his rightful place on the throne of God. Again, in the day of Pentecost, Peter testified that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was due to Christ's exaltation to the right hand of God. By the sending forth of the Spirit and the preaching of the apostles, Christ is currently on the throne, actively building up a house for God's name forever. Just as David wished to build a house for God's name, but could not do it, so Christ is building a house for God's name. First Peter understands this in Peter's letter, and he writes to the elect exiles in the dispersion, us, we Christians who are awaiting return out of exile into the glorious kingdom. He says to us, you are being built up into a spiritual temple in which the Spirit would dwell, the Holy Spirit would dwell. He would make his abode among us. In the calling of the church, we see that just as in this psalm it celebrates God choosing Zion, that God did not choose an earthly city because of its geography or because of the buildings or because of the people. No, God chose the heavenly Jerusalem, as Paul writes in Galatians 4, 26. We are from the Jerusalem which is above. It is free. It is our mother. It's according to faith. God chose the heavenly Jerusalem in which we dwell. And just as this psalm also anticipates God giving Zion bread and joy, so also each Lord's Day as we come together in the church, he fulfills that promise again and again. Each Lord's Day as we come to this table, God satisfies his people with the bread of life, which we eat in a celebration as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This table is rightly called the Eucharist, which is Greek for a celebration or a shout or a giving of thanks. As we reform in the church in the West, we ought not to come to the table wagging our heads, casting aspersions about our sins that week. No, we should recognize Christ died for me, I needed it, and it's a wonderful sacrifice. And now, because I've become a new creation by his spirit and have been washed through the waters of baptism, I am welcome to eat with my Lord, and I will eat bread and joy, and I'll be clothed with garments of righteousness and salvation. That's what this psalm is pointing forward to in its fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, in Christ, we are not only promised his return, which we have been anticipating and will continue to anticipate, but hope beyond hope, we are promised perhaps the greatest promise in the entire scriptures. I can imagine salvation. On a good day, I can imagine it. I can occasionally imagine salvation and the persistence of God's grace despite my ongoing sins. But brothers and sisters, If it were not the word of God, I should never believe to hope for such a great calling as what we see in this psalms. 
Though David's sons did not keep God's covenant, all of Christ's spiritual sons do. If you were here with us in Hebrews, it is well established that Christ is not the father, but he is considered to be the father, quote, father of all those who trust in him. I and the sons you have given me. I will proclaim your name among my brothers. This is what the promise given to David is, that his son, Jesus, will sit on the throne. And if his sons, Jesus's spiritual offspring, remain faithful, they will sit with him. All of those who keep God's testimony concerning Christ, that is the gospel, all of them are promised an eternal weight of glory. As Paul wrote Timothy, quoting a very early song of his day, if we endure with him, we also will reign with him. Even in 1 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Timothy, Paul is quoting a song which they, the, the Christians of his day, were singing, and in their song, they celebrated their reign with Christ at the end of all things. That if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. The Lord Jesus told John the Apostle in the Revelation, in the unveiling, in the Apocalypse, he said, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. If you were here in the Sunday school hour, the context for that bold of a promise is amazing. Where is Christ now? He's at the right hand of God. He's sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning over the nations, ruling and reigning over time and history to wield things for his according purpose, for the purpose that he has in his heart, by which he smashes his enemies. And the enemies he doesn't smash, he turns into his friends. And he has promised you and me, if we persevere, we sit on his throne What a wonderful, breathtaking, seemingly unbelievable promise. As I say, if it were not holy writ, if it were not scripture, it would be blasphemy to claim to sit on the throne of the creator because of perseverance against sin in the flesh in this time by the grace of God, all the grace and the gifts being his given to us, that we should somehow get a blessing of a reward Even though we worked by his power, it makes no sense to the natural mind. And yet, this psalm and the rest of the scriptures say there is a great reward for those who pursue godliness in Christ. So, seeing the glory of the anointed king in his reign, that he has all power, all authority, is wielding things for his appointed end, we ought to shout for joy as we obey his rule. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Understanding the future promised glory is the spiritual ammunition that we need today to persevere that one day we would reign with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is breathtakingly beautiful. We pray that your spirit would thunder into our hearts the reality of the precious promises by which we overcome We pray that these would become so real to us that they would transcend our natural, seemingly blind ways of thinking, that you would give to us a renewed mind, that we would take up 
your word and that we would fight the fight of faith in these moments, that we would not only see Christ and celebrate him and and glorify him, but that as we anticipate his return, we would resolve to walk out a faith-filled, joyful obedience. We thank you for these wonderful promises. We pray that you would sustain us by making them real to us. As we come to this table, Father, open our eyes that we would be able to feast and drink with you. Amen.